Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to another night show with tonight's topics is Warren. Warren's not up here on the show, so uh, Warren's here with me, and welcome to the show, Warren. Hey, Bill. Hey, how you doing? Uh, doing pretty good. So, anyhow, I'm going to let you take it away, Warren. Um, yeah, uh, well, last time when I was reading on uh, Secret Teachings of All Ages, I left off, uh, I believe it was on page 96, and I couldn't really get to a breaking point, so I kind of had to stop in the middle of a paragraph. Um, because I don't have so much time before the show went off, you know. Right. So I guess I'll just start from where I left off. Um, but uh, here we go. Um, here we go. Albert G. Mackey calls attention to the fact that each of the ancient mysteries had its own peculiar plant sacred to the gods or goddesses in whose honor the rituals were celebrated. These sacred plants were later adopted as the symbols of the various degrees in which they were used. Thus, in the mystery of Adonis, lettuce was sacred. In the Brahmin and Egyptian rites, the lotus. Among the Druids, the mistletoe. And among certain of the Greek mysteries, the myrtle. See Encyclopedia of Freemasonry. As the legend of Haramabith is based upon the ancient Egyptian mystery ritual of the murder and resurrection of Osiris, it is natural that the sprig of acacia should be preserved as symbolic of the resurrection of Haram. The chest containing the body of Osiris was washed ashore near Byblos and lodged in the roots of a tamarisk, or acacia, which, growing into a mighty tree, enclosed within its trunk the body of the murdered god. This is undoubtedly the origin of the story that a sprig of acacia marks the grave of Haram. The mystery of the evergreen marking the grave of the dead sun god is also perpetuated in the Christmas tree. The apricot and quince are familiar yonic symbols. Again, yonic means vaginal for the y'all out there. The apricot and the quince are uh, are familiar yonic symbols, which a bunch which the bunch of grapes and the fig are phallic, which means penis, the phallic. The pomegranate is the mystic fruit of the Eleusinian rites. By eating it Proserpine bowed herself to the realms of Pluto. The fruit here signifies the sensuous life which, once tasted, temporarily deprives man of immortality. Also, on account of its vast number of seeds, the pomegranate was often employed to represent natural fecundity. For the same reason, Jacob Bryant in his ancient mythology notes that the ancients recognized in this fruit an appropriate emblem of the of the Ark of the Deluge, which contained the seeds of the new human race. Among the ancient mysteries, the pomegranate was also considered to be a divine symbol of such peculiar significance that its true explanation could not be divulged. 
It was termed by the Kiberi the forbidden secret. Many Greek gods and goddesses are depicted holding the fruit or flower of the pomegranate in their hands, evidently to signify that they are givers of life and plenty. Pomegranate capitals were placed upon the pillars of Joshua and Boaz, standing in front of King Solomon's temple. And by the order of Jehovah, pomegranate blossoms were embroidered upon the bottom of the high priest's ephod, E-P-H-O-D. Strong wine made from the juice of the grape was looked upon as symbolic of the false life and false light of the universe, for it was produced by a false process, artificial fermentation. The rational faculties are clouded by strong drink, and the animal nature, liberated from bondage, controls the individual, facts which necessarily were of the greatest spiritual significance. As the lower nature is the eternal tempter seeking seeking to lead man into excesses which inhibit the spiritual faculties, the grape and its product were used to symbolize the adversary. The juice of the grape was thought by the Egyptians to resemble human blood more closely than did any other substance. In fact, they believed that the grape secured its life from the blood of the dead who had been buried in the earth. According to Plutarch, quote, the priests of the sun at Heliopolis never carry any wine into their temples, and if they made use of it at any time in their libations to the gods, it was not because they looked upon it as 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 in his own nature, acceptable to them. But they poured it upon their altars as the blood of those enemies who formerly had fought against them. For they look upon the vine to have first sprung out of the earth after it was fattened with the carcasses of those who fell in the wars against the gods. And this, say they, is the reason why drinking its juice in great quantities makes men mad and besides themselves, filling them as at war with the blood of their own ancestors, end quote, see Isis and Osiris. Among the cults of the state of intoxication was viewed as a condition, let me, let me repeat that again, I read that wrong. Among some cults, the state of intoxication was viewed as a condition somewhat akin to ecstasy, for the individual was believed to be possessed by the universal spirit of life, whose chosen vehicle was divine. In the mysteries, the grape was often used to symbolize lust and debauchery because of its demoralizing effect upon the emotional nature. The fact was recognized, however, that fermentation was a certain evidence of, of the presence of the solar fire, hence the grape was accepted as the proper symbol of the solar spirit, the giver of divine enthusiasm. In a somewhat similar manner, Christians have accepted wine as the emblem of the blood of Christ, partaking of it in the Holy Communion. Christ, the exoteric emblem of the solar spirit, said, I am the vine. He was therefore worshipped with the wine of ecstasy in the same manner as were his pagan prototypes, back as Dionysus, Ares, and Adonis. The Mandragora Aficionarum, or Mandrake, is accredited with possessing the most remarkable magical powers. Its narcotic properties were recognized by the Greeks, who employed it as who employed it to deaden pain during surgical operations, and it has been identified also with Baris, the mystic herb used by the Jews for casting out demons. In the Jewish Wars, Josephus describes the method of securing the Baris, 
which he declares emits flashes of lightning and destroys all who seek to touch it, unless they proceed according to certain rules supposedly formulated by King Solomon himself. The occult properties of the mandrake, while little understood, have been responsible for the adaptation of the plant as a talisman capable of increasing the value of the value or quantity of anything with which it was associated. As a phallic charm, the mandrake was considered to be an infallible cure for sterility. It was one of the preapic symbols which the Knights Templar were accused of worshipping. The root of the plant closely resembled a human body and often bore the outline of the human head, arms, and legs. This striking similarity between the body of man and the uh, mandragora is one of the puzzles of, nature science, of natural science and is the real basis for the veneration in which this plant was held. In Isis Unveiled, Madame Blavatsky notes that the mandragora seems to occupy upon earth the point where the vegetable and animal kingdoms meet, as the zoophytes and polypi do and die see. This thought opens a vast field of speculation concerning the nature of the animal plant. According to the popular superstition, a mandrake shrank from being touched and crying out with a human voice clung desperately to the soil in which it was embedded. Anyone who heard its cry while plucking it either immediately died or went mad. To circumvent this tragedy, it was customary to dig around the roots of the mandrake until the plant was thoroughly loosened and then to tie one end of a cord about the stalk and fasten the other end to a dog. The dog, obeying his master's call, thereupon dragged the root from the earth and became the victim of the, mandrag of the mandragora curse. Man, fuck that. That's, that's, fuck, man, no, that, that's just screwing the dog over, man. You know, it says, once, uh, once, once, up, when, once uprooted, the plant could be handled with immunity. During the Middle Ages, mandrake charms brought great prices and an art was evolved by which the resemblance between the mandragora root and the human body was considerably accentuated. Like most superstitions, the belief in the peculiar powers of the mandrake was founded upon an efficient secret doctrine concerning the true nature of the plant. Quote, it is slightly narcotic, end quote, says Eliphas Levy, quote, and an aphrodisiacal virtue was ascribed to it by the ancients, who represented it as being sought by Thessalian sorcerers for the composition of its filtress. It, is this root the umbilical vestige of our terrestrial origin, as a certain magical mysticism has suggested? We dare not affirm it, it seriously, but it is true all the same that Man issued from the slime of earth, and his first appearance must have been in the form of a rough sketch. The analogies of nature compel us to admit the notion, at least as a possibility. The first, first men were, in this case, a family of gigantic, sensitive mandragores, animated by the sun, who rooted themselves up from the earth, and quote, see Transcendental Magic. The homely onion was revered by the Egyptians as a symbol of the universe because its rings and layers represent the concentric planes into which creation was divided according to the Hermetic Mysteries. It was also regarded as possessing great medicinal virtue. Because of peculiar properties resulting from its pungency, the garlic plant was a powerful agent in transcendental magic. 
To this day, no better medium has been found for the treatment of obsession. Vampirism and certain forms of insanity, especially those resulting from mediumship and the influences of elemental larvae, respond immediately to the use of garlic. In the Middle Ages, its presence in a house was believed to ward off all evil powers. Trifoliate plants, such as the shamrock, were employed by many religious cults to represent the symbol of the Trinity. St. Patrick is supposed to have used the shamrock to illustrate this doctrine of the triune divinity. The reason for this, for the additional sanctity conferred <coughs> by fourth leaf, is that the fourth principle of the Trinity is man, and the presence of this leaf therefore signifies the redemption of humanity. You know, again, the resurrection, that's what you see when you see the shamrock, you know, in St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. Reeds were worn during initiation into the mysteries and the reading of the sacred books to signify that these processes were consecrated to the deities. On the symbolism of wreaths, Richard Payne Knight writes, instead of beads, wreaths of foliage, generally of laurel, olive, myrtle, ivy, or oak, appear upon coins sometimes encircling the symbolical figures and sometimes as chaplets upon their heads. All these were, were sacred to some peculiar personifications of the deity and significant of some particular attributes, and in general, all evergreens were Dionysiac planes, that is, symbols of the generative power signifying perpetuity of youth and vigor, as the circles of beads and diadems signify perpetuity of existence. See symbolical language of R and mythology. Okay, and I'll take comments from there. Any comments? Not really. Most of it actually makes sense. All right, I'll continue on. Stones, metals, and gems. Each of the primary, each of the four primary elements, as taught by the early philosophers, has its analogy in the coordinary terrestrial constitution of man. The rocks and earth correspond to the bones and flesh. The water of the various fluids, the air, of the ga- the air to the gases, excuse me, excuse me, let me repeat that. The rocks and earth correspond to the bones and flesh, the water to the various fluids, the air to the gases, and the fire to the bodily heat. Since the bones are the framework that sustains the corporeal structure, they may be regarded as a fitting emblem of the spirit, the divine foundation which supports the composite fabric of, of mind, soul, and body. To the initiate, the skeleton of death holding in bony fingers the reaper's scythe denotes Saturn, or Kronos, the father of the gods, carrying the sickle with which he mutilated Oranos, as O-U-R-A-N-O-S, I guess that's how you say it, his own sire. In the language of the mysteries, the spirits of man are the powered bones of Saturn. The latter deity was always worshipped under the symbol of the base or footing, inasmuch as he was considered to be the substructure upholding creation. The myth of Saturn has its historical basis in the fragmentary records preserved by the early Greeks and Phoenicians concerning a king by, the name, by that name who ruled over the ancient continent of Hyperborea. Polaris, Hyperborea, and Atlantis, because they lie buried beneath the continents and oceans of the modern world, have frequently been symbolized as rocks supporting upon their broad surfaces new lands, races, and empires. According to the Scandinavian mysteries, the stones and cliffs were formed from the bones of Ymir, 
the primordial giant of the seething clay, while to the Hellenic mystics the rocks were the bones of the great mother, Gaia. After the deluge sent by the gods to destroy mankind at the close of the Iron Age, only Deucalion and Pyrrha were left alive. Entering a ruined sanctuary to pray, they were directed by an oracle to depart from the temple and with heads veiled and garments unbound, cast behind them the bones of their mother. Construing the cryptic message of the god to mean that the earth was the great mother of all creatures, Deucalion picked up loose rocks and bidding Pyrrha do likewise, cast them behind him. From these rocks, there sprang forth a new and stalwart race of human beings, the rocks thrown by Deucalion becoming men and those thrown by Pyrrha becoming women. In this allegory is epitomized the mystery of human evolution, for spirit by ensouling matter becomes that indwelling power which gradually but, subsequently, but sequentially raises the mineral to the status of the plant, and the plant to the plane of the animal, the animal to the dignity of man, and the man to the state of the gods. The solar system was organized by the forces operating inward from the great ring of the Saturnian sphere. And since the beginning of all things were under the control of Saturn, the most reasonable inference is that the first forms of worship were dedicated to him and his peculiar symbol, the stone. Thus the intrinsic nature of Saturn is synonymous with that spiritual rock which is the enduring foundation of the solar temple and has an antitype or lower octave in the terrestrial rock, the planet Earth, which sustains upon its jagged surface the diversified genera of mundane life. Although its origin is uncertain, lithology undoubtedly constitutes one of the earliest forms of religious expression. I'm not exactly sure what that word means, but hopefully it'll define it. Uh, you know, I'll go ahead and define that word there for you real quick, lithology. I've never heard that word. Let me go ahead and and and, and, and see what that means. Okay. Hold on. I want to see what that means. I've... Yeah. There you go. That's it. Lithology. Okay, it says. Okay, hold on. It, well, here it is. It says, uh, what does it say? I don't even see if it. The worship of stones. It's the worship of stones, okay. Lithology is the worship of stones, okay. It says, Although its origin is uncertain, lithology undoubtedly constitutes one of the earliest forms of religious expression. Throughout all the world, writes Godfrey Higgins, the first object of, of idolatry seemed to have been a plain, unwrought stone placed in the ground as an emblem of the generative or procreative powers of nature. See the, uh, the Celtic Druids. Remnants of stone worship are distributed over the greater part of the Earth's surface, a notable example being the Minerus at Karnak in Brittany, where several thousand gigantic uncut stones are arranged in 11 orderly rows. So there was a town back in ancient Egypt called Brittany, and that interesting. <laughs> Many of the monoliths stand over 20 feet out of the sand in which they are embedded, 
and it has been calculated that some of the larger ones weigh as much as 250,000 pounds. By some, it is believed that certain of the men here mark the location of buried treasure. But the most plausible view is that which regard Karnak as a monument to the astronomical knowledge of antiquity. Scattered throughout the British Isles and Europe, these cairns, dolmens, menhirs, and cistians stand as mute but eloquent testimonials to the existence and achievements of races now extinct. And I guess those are types of stones they're talking about. Uh, particular interest are the rocking or Logan stones, which events the mechanical skill of these early peoples. These relics consist of enormous boulders poised upon one or two small points in which a manner that the slightest pressure will sway them, but the great effort is not sufficient to overthrow them. These were called living stones by the Greeks and Latins, the most famous one being the Gygorian stone in the Strait of Gibraltar. Though so perfectly balanced that it could be moved with the stalk of a daffodil, this rock could not be upset by the combined weight of many men. There is a legend that Hercules raised a, rock, a rocking stone over the graves of the two sons of Boreas, whom he killed in combat. This stone was so delicately poised that it swayed back and forth like the wind, but no application of force could overturn it. A number of Logan stones have been found in Britain, traced of one of one no longer standing, having been discovered in Stonehenge. See the Celtic Druids. It is interesting to note that the green stones forming the inner ring of Stonehenge are believed to have been brought from Africa. In many cases, the monoliths are without carving or inscription, for they undoubtedly antedate both the use of tools and the art of writing. In some instances, the stones have been trued into columns or obelisks, as in the runic monuments and the Hindu lingams and the Sakti stones. In other instances, they are fashioned into rough likenesses of human body, as in the Easter Island statues, or into the elaborately sculpted figures of the body, as I mean, or, excuse me, or into the elaborately sculpted figures of the Central American Indians and the Khmers of, Cambo of Cambodia. The first rough stone images can hardly be considered as effigies of any partic particular deity, but rather as the crude effort to, of, of primitive man to portray in the enduring qualities of stone the procreative attributes of abstract divinity. An instinctive recognition of the stability of deity has persisted through all the intervening ages between primitive man and the modern civilization. Ample proof of the survival of lithology in the Christian faith is furnished by allusions to the rocks of refuge, the rock upon which the Church of Christ was to be founded, the cornerstone which the builders rejected, Jacob's stony pillow which he set up and anointed with oil, the slingstone of David, the rock moria upon which the altar of King Solomon's temple was erected, the white stone of Revelation, and the rock of ages. Stones were highly venerated by prehistoric peoples primarily because of their usefulness. Jagged bits of stone were probably man's first weapon. Rocky cliffs and crags constituted his first 
fortification, and from these vantage points he hurled loose boulders down upon marauders. In caverns or rude huts fashioned from slabs of rock, the first humans protected themselves from the rigors of the element. Stones were set up as markers and monuments to primitive achievement. They were also placed upon the graves of the dead, probably as a precautionary measure to prevent the depredations of wild beasts. During migrations, it was apparently customary for primitive peoples to carry about with them stones taken from the original habitat. As the homeland or birthplace of a race was considered sacred, these stones were emblematic of the universal regard shared by all nations for the place of their geniture. The discovery that fire could be produced by striking together two pieces of stone augmented man's reverence for stones. But ultimately, the hitherto unsuspected world of wonders opened by the newly discovered element of fire caused pyrolatry to supplant stone worship. The dark, cold father, stone, gave birth out of itself to the bright, glowing sunfire. The newly born flame, by displacing its parent, became the most impressive and mysterious of all religio-philosophic symbols, widespread and enduring throughout through the ages. Well, 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 why don't you hold, hold on? You drag me up about uh, the age, okay? The the body of everything was likened to a rock, trued either into a cube or more ornately chiseled to form a pedestal, while the spirit of everything was likened to the elaborately carved figure surmounting it. Accordingly, altars were erected as a symbol of the lower world, and fires were kept burning upon them to represent the spiritual essence illuminating the body it surmounted. The square is actually on one surface of a cube, its corresponding figure in plane geometry and its proper philosophic symbol. Consequently, when considering the earth as an element and not as a body, the Greeks, Brahmins, and Egyptians always referred to it as referred to its four corners, although they were fully aware that the planet itself was a sphere. Because their doctrines were the sure foundation of all knowledge and the first step in the attainment of conscious immor- immortality, the mysteries were often represented as cubical or, pyramid- or pyramidal stones. Conversely, these stones themselves became the emblem of that condition or self-achieved godhood. The unchangeability of the stone made it an appropriate emblem of God the immovable and unchangeable source of existence, and also the divine sciences, the eternal revelation of himself to mankind, as a personification of the, of the rational intellect, which is a true foundation of human life, Mercury or Hermes was symbolized in a like manner. Square or cylindrical pillars, surmounted by a bearded head of Hermes and called Hermia, were set up in the public places. Terminus, uh, which is uh, as a rod, as, as interesting for those of y'all who watch The Walking Dead, is Terminus, right? Terminus, a form, of, a form of Jupiter and god of boundaries and highways, from whose name is derived from the modern word terminal, was also symbolized by an outright stone, sometimes ornamented with the head of the god, which was placed at the borders of provinces and the intersections of important roads. The philosopher's stone is really the philosophical stone, for philosophy is truly likened to a magic jewel whose touch transmutes base substances into priceless gems like itself. 
Wisdom is the alchemist's power projection, which transforms many thousand times its own weight of gross ignorance into the precious substances of enlightenment. Any questions so far? No, not at this point, but the last chapter I was going to say to you, the apricot, when you brought up the apricot? Yeah. You realize it's the seed of the apricot here, Cancer? Oh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Nobody brings that up, and they don't want people knowing that either. That's like a home remedy, but it actually strengthens the immune system and helps the immune system fight off cancer. There's hundreds of home remedies that you can find, man. That are a thousand times more effective, man, than uh, the shit the big pharma and the, and, and, and the scientific community and shit. The fucking doctors want to put you on, you know. They'll push anything in the name of science, right? I mean, I can tell you from personal experience, man. A lot of the times, you can find more more successful remedies around your house, man, for a lot cheaper and they're a lot safer, and they're a lot more effective. Uh, yeah, you're talking big pharma, you're talking a eugenics program and getting you hooked up on their shit for money and watch you die. You know, but they don't want people to know about that because, like I said, you know, like exactly, look how much money they move on that. And the government, you know, loses out on all, on all the fucking bullshit they want to poison people with, you know, through their through their pharmaceuticals. You know, they don't want you to buy their narcotics so they can sit there and poison you, you know, so they can sit here and order your DNA. That's right, but don't smoke marijuana regardless of what you do, because you know that's bad for you, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, what I'm working towards is legalized now, but it's not going to be done for for the benefit of the people. It's going to be done. It's going to be done for the benefit of them. You know. Well, you got to watch out for that. That's a double-edged sword because Monsanto has already made claims, and Monsanto will start growing and producing GMO weed. That's what'll be on your market. So you'll yeah, still be better of course. Off. I think you'll still be better off to buy it black market, growing by somebody else, and Monsanto's free because you can guarantee. Yeah, because you, you know I'll be honest with you, man. Um, I got a relative of mine who has a friend who uh, who gets stuff from Colorado, legal weed, and, and, and then and then gets it out of Colorado. And I've smoked some of that stuff before, man. And it's okay, weed, man. It'll get you high if you smoke a couple of bowls of it, but it's really not nothing that great, man. It's not nearly as as good as the stuff I could buy on the streets around here in my neighborhood. Well, but you know why that is? Huh? Because Colorado, Colorado's soaking the marijuana in uh, butane fuel before and then letting it evaporate off. You know why? Yeah. Because the butane subtracts, uh, takes the THC level out of it. So now it becomes weaker weed, and then they put it on the market. So you're smoking pre-butane-soaked weed. The butane has sucked some of the THC out of it. So now when you're smoking it, you're smoking two bowls, and it's not all that good. And that's the weird thing, because I smoked, like, some medical-grade marijuana before that somebody's had before, man. And that shit will blow your fucking head off. Well, yep. That shit's a good weed. Now they're making it legal. The government's sticking their nose into it and taking some of the drug out of it and making it freaking like ditch weed. It's a weird thing. Like the medical shit, man, is like fucking like, like some blow your head off fucking weed. But yet the shit they put out there for recreational use that I've smoked, man, has been has been very mediocre, very throwaway weed. I mean, you have to smoke several bowls of it to get high sometimes. 
That's exactly what they've done to it, and that was deliberately done. And they charge outrageous outrageous prices for it, too. Mm. And then once Mantles gets involved in this, you're going to be talking weed that ain't even no good for you. So you might be better off to forget about it and just keep buying freaking off the streets and growing your own. Yeah, that's the best thing to do. Right? At some point, they're going to come in and go and sit there and say they're going to try to outlaw growing your own shit. I mean, once collectivization gets, and they already started trying to collectivize farms and all like that now. I mean, it's going to get to the point where if you grow your own vegetables, I mean, we're not there yet, thank God, but we're, we're eventually going to get to that point where if you grow your own vegetables or you grow your own plants, they're going to come in and they're going to say, oh, you're, you're an eco-terrorist, and the whole greening agenda comes in and... You know, you're not allowed to grow anything for yourself or do anything to, you know, to be self-sufficient or self-sustaining. You know, they're going to have a problem with that. <laughs> yeah, the, mankind, the only thing I can say about that is mankind's done it to themselves because this is what happens when you have to have daddy to hold your hand. What they'll do is they'll have all these little collectivized government-ran farms where, where, where they'll tell them how much they're allowed to grow, what what strains they're allowed to grow, what 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 type of crops they're allowed to grow, so on and so forth. And, you know, they'll tax the hell out of them on that, and they'll, you know, poison the shit out of them, of course. I mean. Of course they will. You know, it's, it's going to be all completely government-run. That's the reason you need to abolish governments completely. Yeah, you know. But go ahead, Warren. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll take a break for a few minutes here, man. But, yeah, I mean, I'll talk about uh, getting on that, man. I mean, because you think about it, like, it, it, it boggles my mind. It's crazy to me, man. Even herbal remedies, I mean, you can buy herbs offline. I recommend people out there who are looking to, to you know, who are, especially if you're getting up older and you're getting into, like, you know, need to, you know, take care of your health, look into being your own uh, uh, medicine man to some degree. Look into herbal uh, remedies. Uh, it's crazy to me that, um, that uh, hold on. Crazy to me. Go ahead. That they call this stuff uh, uh, alternative medicine, and I'm like, but wait a minute. But people have been using the, what you will find out. People have been using this so-called alternative medicine for hundreds of thousands of years before there was big pharma. Oh, that's exactly. Big pharma is nothing but a fucking scam. And they used alternative remedies like this actually worked. There's a lot of alternative things that you can get that's naturally grown on the earth that will up your immune system. The reason people are getting sick and coming up with all these diseases is because you're not getting the vitamins or the minerals in your body that it requires for a healthy immune system. You're not getting that no more. And you think, well, I'll just go to the pharmacy and buy some vitamins, and all you're doing is buying fake vitamins that doesn't have the vitamin in it it claims to have doesn't have the mineral in it it claims to have because you're not allowed to have that because they want you to get slow sick, slow kill so that they can profit off of you dying. Pretty much that's how it works, you know. That was, yeah, that way that they could keep selling they they could keep selling medicine that doesn't work while while the person's sitting there dying. But if they if they sell them something that works not only do they lose money off it, a lot of people lose jobs behind it. You know, I mean, you know, you can't you can't make money off a problem that you've already cured that's uh, not existing anymore. And if people don't think that stuff is real for anybody that would be listening, it's quite real. You know, I can give you a little story just about my own self. 
when I had the heart attack back in 2015 and had that triple quadruple bypass done on my heart, afterwards I find out that one of my little veins in my heart, I have blockages, and I was told at the hospital I only had three or four blockages, right? And then I go yeah. into the hospital up where I live, by where I live, and a gal in there, she's a doctor, she turns around and tells me, I asked her what the little veins are for, what the little veins do, and she dodged it, went around it, wouldn't answer me. And then she goes and points at the picture of the heart, points at the little veins and says, well, when this little one here blocks off, she says, this little strand blocks off, you'll have a little heart attack. But don't worry about it because it won't be enough to kill you because we fixed your main arteries. This is what I was told, right? And yeah. she wouldn't answer but that's the way she answered it. Then when I got to the 30-day point, I had to go back and see the guy that did surgery on me. And I said, so I had three or four of the small veins blocked. And he says, oh, no, you got a whole bunch of blockages we can't do anything about. And I said, a whole bunch? And he says, yeah. And I said, so what do they do? Well, he'd done the exact same thing. He dodged the question, okay, and told me, don't worry about that because I fixed your main arteries. He says, oh, however, you will be having chest pain, right? That's all he said, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I went back and did my, whole, my own homework, my own research. I found out what the little veins are for. And then the next time I was in the heart clinic, I brought it up to her again. And this time I said, and so the little veins supply the extra blood to the heart needed when exerting yourself or exercising. Then she looks at me square in the face and says, yeah, that's correct. So, see, she knew the entire time. Did you know what she was trying to push me to do? She was trying to push me back into the work field and push me into physical therapy. So this means I would be pushing blood through them veins with the blockages, which would bring on heart attacks. And after enough little heart attacks, because every little heart attack does damage to the heart, and then heals with scar tissue that don't contract. The heart has to contract to pump. So then one of the RNs says, well, yeah, once you have enough of them little heart attacks, your heart will quit working because it leads to heart failure. So really what they were doing was trying to kill me. Yeah. And, they, and you know, they took me to do my own research and bring it up to them, and then they said, yeah, you're correct, and acknowledged it. So don't yeah, take one systems on your side. The home remedies that Warren's talking about is the way to go. Yeah, look into stuff, Matt. Be your, I mean, you can't completely 100% become your own doctor. I mean, if you need to go to surgery or something, you're going to have to rely on them. But unless, you know, unless you have a surgeon in your own home or something, I mean, but, but I mean, you know, where you can, you want to be your own doctor, man. I mean, yep, and if you, you know. get cancer, if you were to get cancer, I would tell you immediately. Go for home remedies, grow your own vegetables, okay, and start eating vegetables and look for things, even if you have to go overseas or out of the country to get it, that's going to be real vitamins and minerals in your body and not pretend ones. Don't get anything from big pharma, and don't listen to your doctors. Yeah, man, I mean, my doctor now is blown away by the fact that, uh, they wanted to put me on uh, on some sort of like crazy ass medicine for 
acid reflux. They want me to come back an hour and a, or a year and a half later to sit there and see how it was doing. I knocked out less than two weeks taking apple cider vinegar, and the doctors were blown away by it. The doctors were flabbergasted. He didn't know how I did it. So he asked me something about, like, you know, well, because I was gone. I was talking about how, how I don't eat GMOs and stuff like that. Well, I mean, I do, but, I mean, I, I don't promote GMOs. I only eat them because I don't have no other choice. That's all I can afford. Right now, I can't eat a sort of steady organic, organic diet because most people can't afford it. But anyways, um, he was asking me, you know, uh, he was he was asking me, you know, where do I, you know, where, where do you get organic corn? And I'm like, like corn's one of the most genetically modified organisms out there, man, hands down. But you can't find um, organic corn, but you got to go all the way to Mexico to get it, you know, I mean. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You gotta go all the way to Mexico to get to, to to get organic corn. So Yeah, corn in America is just what you said. It's been modified yeah. GMO corn. It's not even good for you. I'll tell you something else that isn't good for you that they promote as being good for you. And that's wheat. Yeah. They'll tell you wheat's good for you, but wheat's not. Wheat actually helps bring on cancer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certain grains are, are good for you, like rice. If I'm rice is good for you, you know. But or or maybe even noodles. I mean, depending on what's in it. But I mean, it, there is a need for grains, I think. But 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 not wheat. I mean, wheat is like a lot of it's like, especially with gluten and shit. You know, wheat is one of the ones that they promote as being a healthier food to eat. And when they tell you it's healthier to eat, it means actually the opposite. It's not healthier yeah. to eat, and you should stay away from it. Yeah. But, you you know, a lot of people ain't going to get it. They're going to believe what's been fed to them. They're going to eat the poison and wonder why they're sick. You know. And, I mean, if, if you're really creative, man, if you've got the, uh, the ingredients together, what you can do, and I've seen this being done before online, is – you can make alternative breads out of, like, rice and things like that that are healthier for you. You make, like, rice breads and things as an alternative. Yeah. You know. There's a lot of too, but people have to try to understand that what they what they advertise on TV and what the medical industry is telling you is lies. Well, I've, I have a theory on this is that if you're creative enough, of course, it's going to cost you a pretty penny. you got to have a lot of, I guess you're going to have a lot of money to really do this. But if you, if you, you can make most of the types of things, you know, that people want to eat, and, you know, like, you know, like you can make almost anything a healthier version of it if you just substitute the ingredients. Like even chocolate, man, like dark chocolate is actually good for you. So if you use another sweetener other than like sugar or something, like, you know, there's other sweeteners out there that you could theoretically use. Uh, Even honey is relatively better for you than cane sugar Uh, or even brown sugar is better than white sugar. But sugar is really not good for you. Um, but like you can use other sweeteners like maca and things like that. I mean, there's other sweeteners out there you can use. You know, you can use uh, fructose sweeteners like from from fruits and stuff like that. Yeah, you, you know, which are natural sweeteners. Yeah, and, but as far as other sweeteners, there is one other sweetener you want to stay away from, and that's called sweetened low. The sweetened yeah. low has aspartame in it. Yeah. And most you know, and all, I mean, pr- 
probably the same show that Stevia and shit too. I mean, I don't know. I can't say that for certain, but but but, but I would I would imagine. Yeah. Well, I know yeah. the sweet. I know the sweet low is no good for you. It has aspartame in it. So if you yeah. want poison, go ahead and get it. Go ahead and poison yourself. But they got to remember, yeah. a lot of this is programmed to begin with, and it's not about putting like cyanide in your food that kills you within minutes or hour, you know, within an hour. No, they're not going to do that because that would cause a mass awakening. The stuff they give you is called slow kill. Yeah. That'd be interesting, though, man. Think about it a lot. Like, if you're really creative enough, man, you can make, like, French fries and pizzas and stuff like that. You can make healthier versions of it, man. <laughs> you know? I have to do, like I said, I have to do is just is just change up, uh, you know, the ingredients and maybe change up some of the procedures a little bit. But I mean, you, you know, you can make a healthier version of the same thing. But it'll be it'll be at least comparable to the original product. Yeah. You know, well, it might be, not be as good, but it'll be at least comparable. Yeah, it may not be as good, but sometimes what you were used to is most of the time people are raised on. Foods that are no good for them, and they don't even yeah, know they yeah. are. And you eat this stuff your whole life, not knowing it's not good for you. So then, when you get to be, you get a little older, you start getting sick. You know, the whole time you were sick and didn't even know it because your immune system broke down because of what you were eating. Yeah. That's what it is, man. Don't it brings on cancer. It brings on other diseases. They don't care because they're making money. I'm going to continue reading uh, from where I left off. The Tablet of the Law. While upon the heights of Mount Sinai, Moses received from Jehovah two tablets bearing the characters of the Decalogue, traced by the very finger of Israel's God. These tables were fashioned from the divine sapphire, Scythia, which the Most High, after removing from his own throne, had cast into the abyss to become the foundation and generator of the world. This sacred stone, formed of heavenly dew, was sundered by the breath of of God, and upon the two parts were drawn in black fire the figures of the law. These precious inscriptions, aglow with celestial splendor, were delivered by the Lord on the Sabbath day and into the hands of Moses, who was able to read the illumined letters from the reverse side because of the transparency of the great jewel. See the secret doctrine in Israel or the Zohar for details of this legend. The Ten Commandments are the ten shining gems placed by the Holy One in the sapphire sea of being, and in the depths of matter and the reflections of these jewels are seen as the laws governing the, the sublunary spheres. They are the sacred ten by which the supreme deity has stamped his will upon the face of nature. This same decade was celebrated by the Pythagoreans under the form of the Tetractus, the triangle of spermatic points, which reveals the initiated, which, which reveals to the initiated the whole working of the cosmic scheme. For ten is the number of perfection, the key to creation, the proper symbol of God, man, and the universe. 
Because of the idolatry of the Israelites, Moses deemed the people unworthy to receive the sapphire tables. Hence he destroyed them, that, that the mysteries of Jehovah should not be violated. They might have been tablets there. He said, uh, you know, uh, the sapphire tablets on the pages. For the original set, Moses substituted two tablets of rough stone into the surface of which he had cut ten ancient letters. While the former uh, tables, partaking of the divinity of the tree of life, blazed forth eternal verities, the latter, partaking of the nature of the tree of good and evil, revealed only temporal truths. Thus the ancient traditions of Israel returned again to heaven, leaving only its shadows with the creation of the twelve tribes. There's a ring in my ear. Anyway, one of the two tables of stone delivered by the lawgiver to his followers stood for the oral, the other for the written traditions upon which the rabbinical school was founded. Authorities differ widely as to the size and substance of the inferior tables. Some describe them as being so small that they could be held in the hollow of a man's hand. Others declare that each table was 10 or 12 cubits in length and of enormous weight. A few even deny that the tables were of stone, maintain that they were of a wood called called Sedar, S-E-D-R, which, according to the Mohammedans, grows profusely in paradise. The two tables signify respectively the superior and the inferior worlds, the paternal and the maternal formulative, uh, formative principles. In their undivided state, they represent the cosmic androgyny, or androgyne, you know, andro, A-N-D-R-G-Y-N-E. The breaking of the table signifies obscurely the separation of the superior and the inferior spheres and also the division of the sexes. In the religious processions of the Greeks and Egyptians, an ark or ship was carried which contained stone tablets, cones, and vessels of various shapes emblematic of the procreative processes. The Ark of the Israelites, which was patterned after the sacred chest of the, of the Isaiah Mysteries, contained three holy objects, each having an important phallic interpretation, the pot of manna, the rod of that budded, and the tablets of the law, the first, second, and third principles of the creative triad. The manna, the blossoming staff, and the stone uh, tables are also appropriate images, respectively, of the Kabbalah, the Mishnah, and the written law, the spirit, soul, and body of Judaism. When placed in King Solomon's everlasting house, the Ark of the Covenant contained only the tablets of the law. Does this indicate that even at the early date, the secret tradition had been lost and the letter of the revelation alone remained? As representing the power of the fa as representing the power that fabricated the lower or demiurgic sphere. The tablets of stone were sacred to Jehovah in contradistinction to the tablets of sapphire that signified the potency that established the higher or celestial sphere. Without doubt, the Messiah tablets have their prototype in the stone pillars or obelisk placed on either side of the entrance to pagan temples. These columns may pertain to that remote time when men, when men worshipped the Creator through his zodiacal sign of Gemini, the symbol of which is still the phallic pillars of the celestial twins. Quote, the Ten Commandments, writes Hargrave Jennings, 
quote, are inscribed in two groups of five each in commoner form. The five to the right looking from the altar mean the law. The five to the left from mean the prophets. The right stone is masculine. The left stone is feminine. They correspond to the two disjointed pillars of stone or towers in the front of every cathedral and of every temple in the heathen times, end quote. See the Rosicrucians, their rites and mysteries. The same author states that the law is masculine because it was delivered direct from the deity, while the prophets or gospels were feminine because born through the nature of man. The right tablet of the law further signifies Joshin, the white pillar of light, the left tablet, Boaz, the shadowy pillar of darkness. These were the names of the two pillars cast from brass set up on the porch of King Solomon's temple. They were 18 cubits in height and beautifully ornamented with wreaths of chain work, nets, and pomegranates. On the top of each pillar was a large bowl, now erroneously called a ball or a globe, one of the bowls probably containing fire and the other water. The celestial globe, originally the bowl of fire, surmounting the right-hand column, Joshin, symbolized the divine man. The terrestrial globe, the bowl of water, surmounting the left-hand column, Boaz, signified the earthly man. The two pillars respectively connote also the active and passive expression of divine energy, the sun and the moon, sulfur and salt, good and bad, light and darkness. Between them is the door leading into the house of God, and standing thus at the gates of the sanctuary, they are a reminder that Jehovah is both an androgynous and an anthropomorphic deity. You hear that, right? And we repeat that. Between them is the doors leading into the house of God, and standing thus to the gates of sanctuary, they are a reminder that Jehovah is both an androgynous and an anthropomorphic deity. Now, these... People who are running our society believe that they are co-creators with God and that they are creating us in, quote, God's image, you see. So it goes your androgynous agenda. As two parallel columns, they denote the zodiacal signs of Cancer and Capricorn, which were formerly placed in the chamber of initiation to represent birth and death, the extremes of physical life. They accordingly signify the summer and the winter solstices, now known to Freemasons under the comparatively modern appellation of the two St. John's. In the mysterious Sephirothic tree of the Jews, these two pillars symbolize mercy and severity. Standing before the gates of King Solomon's temple, these columns have the same symbolic import as the obelisk before the sanctuaries of Egypt. When interpreted Kabbalistically, the names of the two pillars mean, and strength shall shall my house be established. In the splendor of mental and spiritual illumination, the high priest stood between the pillars as a mute witness to the perfect virtue of equilibrium, the hypothetical point equidistant from all extremes. He thus personified the divine nature of man in the midst of his compound constitution, the mysterious Pythagorean monad in the presence of the duad. On one side towered the stupendous column of the intellect, on the other, the brazen pillar of the flesh. Midway between these two stands the glorified wise man, but he cannot reach this high estate without first suffering upon the cross made by joining these pillars together. The early Jews occasionally represent the two pillars, Joshua and Boaz, as the legs of Jehovah, thereby signifying the modern philosopher 
signified to the modern philosopher that wisdom and love, in their most exalted sense, support the whole order of creation, both mundane and supermundane. I'll break right there. Any questions? Well, you know, what year was this from? What year was this from? This was uh, Secret Teachings of All Ages. It's a pretty old book. I'm not exactly sure what. uh, Let me see. Uh, I'm not talking about about the book itself. It's Secret Teaching of All Ages, right? Yeah. So I'm curious, the part of the story you just read, what age was they talking about during that time? Um, I'm not sure. Well, now the, the reason I asked is because they brought up the division of the genders. Yeah. Okay, so when you read that, if you could figure out what time frame that was, what year they're talking about, you know, or what, when, they can tell you how far back they've been going with the division of the genders. Because this yeah. right there division. This is what causes the biggest problems in our society is division. Yeah, but even masses can be, I mean, I mean, it goes down to the individual. Even, I mean, you know, it's going to take more than people just coming together, man. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's part of it, but that's it's going to take a lot more than that. It's got to come from the individual. I mean, there's going to be a lot of mass-minded people that are going to go along with it or I mean, oh, I you know, understand. they're not going to be divided, but they're still going to be brainwashed. I mean. I totally understand that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if you can figure out the story, the part of this that you just read, if you I'm can figure out. I'm trying to look and see where where, where it might be. Um, well, of course, these are mysteries that, that, that are that are inherent throughout the, the, the symbolic, the cult angles of the system that, that have spanned throughout the ages, though. I understand that, but I'm trying to figure out what age they were talking about in the story you read, because they clearly said, as you read, they clearly said in the division of the genders. Yeah. Right in your face, it clearly said it. They were already, at whatever age this was in, they were already working on dividing the genders then. Yeah, but 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 but, but, but it won't, it's, it's order out of chaos, right? Unity through division into a synthesized into a synthesized compromise, and what that is is a hermaphrodite. That's what they want out yes. of They want a hermaphroditic slave. Yes, yes, I am, I'm with you on that and agree. I was just trying to figure out what age they were talking about because right there they clearly said it. Whatever age that was in the part you read, they were already working on dividing the men and women then. Yeah, of course. Well, they've always been doing that. They've been doing that throughout time. I mean, it would go. Yeah. It would go in fluxes. I mean, down through the rise and falls of the empires, it would go. Through, I mean, every empire goes through go through a series of stages. Like most of our, of course, these days you don't have any soft patriarchies like that anymore. But, but, but historically, empires would go through a, a series of stages. It would go from a, a patriarchy to a egalitarian or sort of like gynocentric traditionalist sort of stage to feminism, to collapse, and then back to patriarchy again. But this yeah. time I think it's going to be a bit different because things have changed now because we live in a much more technologized and scientifically indoctrinated world where a lot of our natural uh, uh, instincts have already been short-circuited to a more, more or less, and people became a, 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 a very, very comfortable 
in an artificial system. So that's going to have a play a factor on it, you know. Yes, that that's correct. I mean, I have nothing against everything you say, and I understand, and you're correct about. I just I had to throw that one question at you because you're right. I mean, they have, but the only reason I pointed that out is because as long as you have the divide, you have everything Warren was talking about, and it just comes to show how long they've been keeping and dividing the genders. Yeah. You know, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, as you said, it would go through fluxes, though, man. I mean, you know, with all these ebb and flow of empires, there'd be points in the empire where there was relatively, where there was relatively little division between the genders, and then as it continued on, the, the the division would get worse and worse and worse until the empire collapsed. Yep, exactly. And what you got to do yeah. is try to try to stop the divide, the division, because the division yeah. is uh it's a weapon used against all of us. Yeah. Go ahead, go on. Yeah, I'll continue on. Let me go ahead and get back to my computer here. It says, the Holy Grail, uh, like the Sapphire Scythia, the Lapis Exilus, or Exilus, crown jewel of the Archangel Lucifer, fell from heaven. Michael, Archangel of the Sun and the hidden God of Israel, the head of the angelic host, at the head of the angelic host swooped down. I mean, what's that? Oh, wait, hold on. Let me read that again. The Michael Archangel of the Son and the Hidden God of Israel, at the head of the angelic host, swooped down upon Lucifer and his legions of rebellious spirits. During the conflict, Michael, with his flaming sword, struck the flashing lapis exilus from the coronet of his adversary. And the green stone fell through all the celestial rings into the dark and immeasurable abyss. Out of Lucifer's radiant gem was fashioned the Sangreal, or Holy Grail, from which Christ is said to have drunk at the Last Supper. Through some controversy, though some controversy exists as to whether the Grail was a cup or a platter, it is generally depicted in art as a chalice of considerable size and, and unusual beauty. According to the legend, Joseph of Arimathea brought the grail cup to the place of the crucifixion, and in it caught the blood pouring from the wounds of the dying Nazarene. Later, Joseph, who had become custodian of the sacred relics, the Sangreal and the Spear of Longinus, carried them into a distant country. According to one version, his descendants finally placed these relics in Glastonbury Abbey in England, according to another in a wonderful castle on Mount Salvat, Spain, but by angels in a single night. Under the name of Preston John Parsifal, the last of the Grail kings carried the Holy Cup with him into India, and it disappeared forever from the Western world. Subsequent search for the Sangreal was the motive for much of the night errantry of the Arthurian legends and the ceremonials of the round table. Interesting how so much of this keeps going back to India, man, um, which the, the higher mystery schools, even going back to the ancient times, are always taught in India. India was a major seat of power in ancient Persia, or what is today modern India. 
Um, yeah, India uh, has a very, very high occult significance uh, as one of the places in this world. India is also one of the places in the world that they actually pair up their children. They decide what the families decide what girls going to be with what boy, and they're paired up yeah. and married them. Yeah, arranged marriages. They got that throughout uh, throughout a lot, uh, parts of the Muslim culture too. A lot of the Muslim culture operates in arranged marriages, and so do the elites. The elites all over the world have arranged marriages because they got their handlers too. You know. Uh huh. So, anyway, it says no adequate interpretation has ever been given to the Grail mysteries. Some believe the Knights of the Holy Grail to have been a powerful organization of Christian mystics perpetuating the ancient wisdom under the rituals and sacraments of the oracular cup. The quest for the Holy Grail is the eternal search for truth, and Albert G. Mackey sees in it a variation of the Masonic legend of the lost word so long sought by the brethren of the craft. There is also evidence to support the claim that the story of the Grail is an elaboration of an early pagan nature myth which has been preserved by reason of the subtle manner in which it was engrafted upon the cult of Christianity. From this particular viewpoint, the Holy Grail is undoubtedly a type of the ark or vessel in which the life of the world is preserved and therefore is significant of the body of the Great Mother, nature. Its green color relates to its Venus and to the mysteries of generation, also to the Islamic faith whose sacred color is green, and whose Sabbath is Friday, the day of Venus. The Holy Grail is a symbol both of the lower or irrational world and of the bodily nature of man, because both are receptacles for the living essences of the superior worlds. Such is the mystery of the redeeming blood which, descending into the condition of death, overcomes the last enemy by ensouling all substances with its own immortality. To the Christian, whose whose mystic faith especially emphasizes the love element, the Holy Grail typifies the heart in which continually swirls the living water of eternal life. Moreover, to the Christian, the search for the Holy Grail is the search for the real self, which, when found, is a consummation of the magnum opus. So he's telling you, the search for the Holy Grail, the meaning of life, is the search for self-discovery, to know thyself. And that's the hidden truth that's hidden within the Bible, which you won't get from following the Bible. What he's telling you right there is the same thing you can learn more directly. If you read a book by Carl Jung, and that's spelled with a J, Carl, C-A-R-L, Jung, J-U-N-G. And the name of this book is The Undiscovered Self. And I would recommend that book highly. It's a, it's a life-changing book. Bill, I would recommend that book. If you got the time, read that book. It, 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 seriously, it's a, it's a life-changing book, man. But um, I, anyway, I'll continue on. The Holy Cup can be discovered only by those who have, re- who have raised themselves above the limitations of sensuous existence. In his mystic poem, The Vision of Sir Lawnfall, James Russell Lowell discloses the true nature of the Holy Grail by showing that it is visible only to a certain state of spiritual consciousness. Only upon returning from the vain pursuit of haughty ambition did the aged and broken knight see in the transformed leper's cup the glowing chalice of his lifelong dream. 
some writers trace a similarity between the Grail legend and the stories of the martyred sun gods whose blood descending from heaven into the earth was caught in a cup of matter and liberated therefrom by the initiatory rites. The Holy Grail may also be the, speed pod, the seed pod so frequently employed in the ancient mysteries as an emblem of germination and resurrection. And if the cup-like shape of the grail be derived from the flower, it signifies the regeneration and spiritualization of the generative forces in man. There are many accounts of stone images which, because of the substances entering into the composition and the ceremonials, uh, ceremonies attendant upon their construction, were ensouled by the divinities whom they were created to resemble. To such images were ascribed various human faculties and powers, such as speech, thought, and even motion. While renegade priests doubtless resorted to trickery, an instance of which is related in a curious apocryphal fragment entitled Bell and the Dragon and and supposedly deleted from the end of the book of Daniel, many of the phenomena recorded in connection with sanctified statues and relics can hardly be explained unless the work of supernatural agencies be admitted. History records the existence of stones which, when struck, threw all who heard the sound into a state of ecstasy. There were also equine images which whispered for hours after the room itself had become silent and musical stones productive of the sweetest harmonies. In recognition of the sanctity which the Greeks and Latins ascribed to stones, they placed their hands upon certain consecrated pillars when taking an oath. In ancient times, stones played a part in determining the fate of, of accused persons, for it was customary for juries to reach their verdicts by dropping pebbles into a bag. Divination by stones was often resorted to by the Greeks, and Helena is said to have foretold by lithomancy the destruction of Troy. Many popular superstitions about stones survived the so-called Dark Ages, and lithomancy, of course, is, uh, I guess, the, the unforeseen of things through stones or something, something to do with stones. It says, chief among these is the one concerning the famous black stones in the seat of the coronation chair in Westminster Abbey, which is declared to be actual rock used by Jacob as a pillow, an old psych allegory of Jacob's pillow. But you always like, you know, look that up. The black stone has also also appeared several times in religious symbolism. It was called Heliogabalus, a word presumably derived from Elagabal, the Syrophoenician sun god. This stone was sacred to the sun and declared to possess great and diversified properties. The black stone in the Kaaba at Mecca is still revered throughout the Mohammedan world. It is said to have been white originally and of such brilliancy that it could be seen many days' journey from Mecca. But as ages passed, it became blackened by the tears of pilgrims and the sins of the world. And that's a break right there. Um, any questions so far? Not this time. Okay, I'll continue on. For one more uh, one more round before I'll break. The magic of metals and gems. According to the teachings of the mysteries, the rays of celestial bodies striking the crystallizing influences of the lower world become the various elements partaking of the astral virtues of their source. These elements neutralize certain unbalanced forms of celestial activity and, when properly combined, contribute much to the well-being of man. Little is known today concerning these magical properties, but the modern world 
may yet find it profitable to consider the findings of the early philosophers who determined these relationships by extensive experimentation. Out of such research arose the practice of identifying the metals with the bones of the various deities. For example, the Egyptians, according to Manetho, considered iron to be the bone of Mars and the lodestone the bone of Horus. By analogy, lead would be the physical skeleton of Saturn, copper of Venus, quicksilver of Mercury, gold of the sun, silver of the moon, and antimony of the earth. It is possible that uranium will prove to be the metal of Uranus and radium to be the metal of Neptune. The four ages of the Greek mystics, the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age, are metaphoric expressions referring to the four major periods in the life of all things. In the divisions of the day, they signify dawn, midday, sunset, and midnight. In the duration of gods, men, and universes, they denote the periods of birth, growth, maturity, and decay. The Greek ages also bear a close correspondence to the four yugas of the Hindus. Krita Yuga, Treta Yuga, Devapara Yuga, and Kali Yuga. Their method of calculation is described by Eulamudian as follows. In each of the 12 signs, there are 1,800 minutes. Multiply this number by 12, you have 21,600, e.g. 1,800 by 12 equals 2,100. Multiply this 21,600 by 80, and it will give 1,728,000, which is the duration of the first age, called Krita Yuga. If the same number be multiplied by 60, it will give 1,296,000, the years of the second age, the Treta Yuga. The same number multiplied by 40 gives... 864,000, the length of the third age, or Divapara Yuga. The same multiplied by 20 gives 432,000, the fourth age, Kali Yuga. It will be noted that these multipliers decrease into inverse ratio to the Pythagorean Tetractus, 1, 2, 3, and 4. H.B. Plavatsky declares that Orpheus taught his followers how to affect a whole audience by means of lodestone, and that Pythagoras paid particular attention to the color and nature of precious stones. She adds, quote, The Buddhists assert that the sapphire produces peace of mind, equanimity, and chases all evil thoughts by establishing a healthy circulation in man. So does an electric battery with its well-directed fluid, say our electricians. The sapphire, say the Buddhists, will open barred doors and dwellings for the spirit of man. It produces a desire for prayer and brings with it more peace than any other gem. But he who would wear it must lead a pure and holy life, end quote, see Isis unveiled. Mythology abounds with accounts of magical rings and talismanic jewels. In the second book of his Republic, Plato describes a ring which, when the collar was turned inward, rendered its wearer invisible. With the Gyges, the shepherd secured for himself the throne of Lydia. Josephus also describes magical rings designed by Moses and King Solomon, and Aristotle mentions one which brought love and honor to its possessor. 
in his chapter dealing with the subject, Henry Cornelius Agrippa only, not only mentions the same rings, but states upon the authority of Philostratus Jarchus that Apollonius of Tiana extended his life to over 20 years with the aid of seven magical rings presented to him by an East Indian prince. Each of these seven rings was set with a gem partaking of the nature of one of the seven ruling planets of the week, and by daily changing the rings, and by daily changing the rings, Apollonius protected himself against the sickness and death by the intervention of the planetary influences. The philosopher also instructed his disciples in the virtues of these talismanic jewels, considering such information to be indispensable to the theurgist. Agrippa described the preparation of magical rings as follows, quote, When any star or planet ascends, fortunately, with the fortunate aspect or a conjunction of the moon, we must take a stone and herb that is under that star and make a ring of the metal that is suitable to this star, and in it fasten the stone, putting the herb or root under it, not omitting the inscription of images, names, and characters, as also the proper suffumigations. See, three books of occult philosophy. The ring has long been regarded as the symbol of attainment, perfection, and immortality, the last because the circlet of precious metal had neither beginning nor end. In the mysteries, rings chased to resemble a serpent, with its tail in his mouth, were worn by initiates as material evidence of the position reached by them in the order. Again, that's the Ouroboros, is in a circle. Signet rings engraved with certain secret emblems were worn by the hierophants, and it was not uncommon for a messenger to prove that he was the official representative of a prince or other dignitary by bringing with his message either an impression from his master's ring or the signet itself. The wedding ring originally was intended to, to imply that in the nature of the one who wore it, the state of equilibrium and completion had been attained. This plain band of, of course, you know, and two, they say, you know, had been attained, the union of man and woman. They say, they say you're, you know, you hear the terms of your better half and all this stuff, you know, they, they become one in one holy mastery union, you know. That's symbolic, too, of the androgyny, by the way. I wanted to go ahead and put that out there. It says, this plain band of gold, therefore, bore witness to the union of the higher self, or God, with the lower self-nature, and the ceremony consummating this indissoluble blending of divinity and humanity in the one nature of the initiated mystic constitutes the hermetic marriage of the mysteries. In describing the regalia of the magician, Eliphas Levy declares that on Sunday, the day of the sun, he should carry in his right hand a golden wand set with a ruby or chrysolite. On Monday, the day of the moon, he should wear a collar of three strands consisting of pearls, crystals, and selenites. On Tuesday, the day of Mars, he should carry a wand of magnetized steel and a ring of the same metal set with an amethyst. On Wednesday, the day of Mercury, he should wear a necklace of pearls or glass beads containing mercury and a ring set with an agate. On Thursday, the day of Jupiter, he should carry a wand of glass or resin and wear a ring set with 
an emerald or sapphire. On Friday, the day of Venus, he should carry a wand of polished copper and wear a ring set with a turquoise and a crown or a diadem decorated with lapis lazuli and beryl. And on sun, Saturday, the day of Saturn, he should carry a wand ornamented with onyx stone and wear a ring set with onyx and a chain about the neck formed of lead. See the magical ritual of the Sanctum Regnum. Paracelsus, Agrippa, Kircher, Lily, and numerous other magicians and astrologers have, have tabulated the gems and stones correspond to the various planets and zodiacal signs. The following list has been compiled from their writings. To, to the sun is assigned the carbuncle, ruby, and garnet, especially the paropi and other fiery stones, sometimes the diamond. To the moon, the pearl, selenite, and other forms of crystal. To Saturn, the onyx, jasper, topaz, and sometimes the lapis lazuli. To Jupiter, the sapphire, emerald, and marble. To Mars, the amethyst. Hyacinth, lodestone, sometimes the diamond. To Venus, the turquoise, beryl, emerald, and sometimes the pearl, alabaster, coral, and carnelian. To Mercury, the chrysolite, agate, and variegated marble. To the zodiac, the same authorities assigned the following gems and stones. To Aries, the sardonyx, bloodstone, amethyst, and diamond. To Taurus, the carnelian, turquoise, hyacinth, sapphire, moss agate, and emerald. To Gemini, the topaz, agate, chrysoprase, crystal, and aquamarine. To Cancer, the topaz, chalcedony, black onyx, moonstone, pearl, cat's eye, crystal, and sometimes the emerald. To Leo, the jasper, sardonyx, beryl, ruby, chrysolite, amber, tourmaline, sometimes the diamond. To Virgo, the emerald, chameleon, jade, chrysolite, and sometimes the pink jasper and hyacinth. To Libra, the beryl, sardius, coral, lapis lazuli, lapis lazuli, opal, and sometimes a diamond. To Scorpio, the amethyst, beryl, sardonyx, aquamarine, carbuncle, lodestone, tobaz, and malachite. To Sagittarius, dihyacinth, topaz, Chrysolite, emerald, carbuncle, and turquoise. To Capricorn, the cryoprase, ruby, malachite, black onyx, white onyx, jet, and moonstone. To Aquarius, the crystal, sapphire, garnet, zircon, and opal. To Pisces, the sapphire, jasper, chrysolite, moonstone, and amethyst. Both the magic mirror and the crystal ball are symbols little understood. Woe to the benighted mortal who accepts literally the story circulating concerning them. He will discover often at the cost of sanity and health that sorcery and philosophy, while often confused, have nothing in common. Persian magi carried mirrors as an emblem of the material sphere which reflects divinity from its every part. The crystal ball, long misused as a medium for the cultivation of of psychical powers is a threefold symbol. One, it signifies the crystalline universal egg and whose transparent depth creation exists, which again is a yonic or vaginal symbol, is the wound, you know. Two, it is a proper figure of deity previously to its immersion in matter. And three, it signifies the etheric sphere of the world and whose translucent essences 
is impressed and preserved the perfect image of all terrestrial activity. Meteors or rocks from heaven were considered tokens of divine favor and enshrined as evidence of a pact between the gods and the community in which they fell. Curiously marked or chipped natural stones are occasionally found. In China, there is a slab of marble, the grain of which forms a perfect likeness to the Chinese dragon. The Obera Margal stone, I guess is how you say that, chipped by nature into a close resemblance to the popular conception of the face of Christ, is so remarkable that even the crowned head of Europe requested the privilege of beholding it. Stones of such nature were held in the highest esteem among the primitive peoples, and even today exert a wide influence upon the religiously minded. And I'll stop there and start back next uh, next week on page 101, Ceremonial Magic and Sorcery. That should be getting interesting. Right? Okay. Yep, and sorcery. They're, huh? they're telling you. They got, a whole, they got a whole chapter devoted to ceremonial magic and sorcery. So they're telling you right there that you're that you're the higher orders of your Freemasonry. That all your politicians and stuff can can provenly uh, uh, they you got proved very easily that they belong to all over the world. And yet, what are the higher order of these uh, uh, of these uh, people practicing sorcery and black magic? And there's an entire the uh, chapter devoted to that, which I'll be getting into next week. Now, isn't that rich? That's not direct. That's not direct proof of anything supernatural, but it is kind of very, very uh, compelling indirect evidence. Yeah. You know. I mean, so. You know, I mean, and I don't believe in the term supernatural. Really, I believe that. That most of these things, like even things like the ghosts and stuff, right? She, you know, you know, she would be able to confirm that they exist, which I believe they do. I mean, I, you know, I can't concretely prove that to other people, but I believe that there that there is a way to quote scientifically. I mean, when I say scientific, I don't mean according to the science of man or to the institution of of what we're. Fed. I'm talking about like when I say science, right? The world was round before Christopher Columbus proved that the world was round. Just because we didn't, just because we haven't discovered the world was round, didn't mean that the world wasn't round. So the science of the world was that it was round, whether, whether we were privy to it or not, right? And the same. So when I say that, when I say when I say science, I mean like as in the essence of of the universal science, which which again we know very limited about. I mean, you know, but but I believe that. That there is uh, a scientific way of describing these things, whether humans are privy to it or not, or whether we're even able to comprehend it or not, you know. But um, you know, but, but these are things that 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 that, that, that seemingly could have a scientific explanation. It's not stuff like like people surviving in the belly of a whale, which you can scientifically disprove, <laughs> you know. Uh huh. I mean, you know, I mean, it's not like fairy tale stuff like you read in like you know literal, the literal interpretation of most of your uh, your religions. You know, God as, per- as foretold in religion is pretty much like Santa Claus for adults. I mean, at least the 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 the, the religious personification of of God. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean. Well, 
next year they really messed up Santa Claus anyhow. Because this year. Yeah, we well, you know it's not an anagram for Satan. I said this year they messed up Santa Claus. They yeah, they the did. Of Santa Claus and turned him gay. <laughs> yeah, well, don't surprise me. They're doing with everything now. But you know, Santa Claus is an, I mean, Santa is an anagram for Satan. Oh, yeah, I understand that. But for the little kids, you just turned him gay. And then you also had the black man being Santa Claus. And the white and Santa Claus was, was Santa Claus's wife. Think about it. <laughs> Santa's sleigh is, is, is led by what? Like some like seven or eight reindeer? And reindeer have what? Horns, right? <laughs> or antlers, but they're horns. They're a type of horn. But yeah, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. There, the actual real Santa Claus, uh, actually, there actually was a real Santa Claus, but he didn't go all around the world delivering presents and whatnot because that's not humanly possible to do. But what he was, was uh, apparently he was a, a saint that worked for, I guess, for the Vatican. So I'm sure we're not being told the whole story on it, but, I mean, but, uh, or maybe, maybe, well, who knows, but he was a saint that worked for the Vatican, and I guess, like, once a year, or, or, or so the official story goes, like, once a year he would donate uh, toys and stuff to the needy children, you know, in his community, or in Italy, or whatnot, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Santa Claus, I mean, the whole thing. Santa Claus was evil, just as you said. I yeah. Mean, so many lies being told, as you say, it's pathetic. Yeah, you know. And you go, what you're reading here is very powerful stuff. But, you know, then you're at the same time, you just question yourself how many people can see it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, like I said, I mean, not many people are going to see it, man. That's why I say, I mean, you know, it's really a personal journey. It's a very spiritual journey that you got to make on your own, man. To, to, you know, cause a lot of people have the mindset of, well, what's the purpose of learning all this? You're not going to do anything about it. Well, what's the purpose of learning that is is knowledge, self-discovery, by learning what's going on in the world around me. I'm learning about life, and I'm learning about what my place in this is and who I am as an individual. And that's called discovery, man. That's, I mean, you know, uh, you know, I mean, because because anything else, and I don't mean this to come down on people, but I'm just being realistic. If, if you're not curious about what's going on in our world, that means you're willfully ignorant. And if you're willfully ignorant, what good is your opinion on anything? Exactly. You know... Why even have an opinion? Well, that's it. You know? I mean, well, you know, nowadays people say people are just looking at his opinions are like assholes, and everybody has one. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And nope, nobody cares about anybody's opinion. Are they well, that's what people ask me, like, you know, what do I believe? It's like, you know, I kind of agree with what Mark, what Mark Pasio said. You know, I don't believe anything. I don't believe anything. I mean, I don't agree with Mark Pasio and everything, but, like, I, I kind of really say, like, I don't believe anything, man. You know, I don't have a belief system, man. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I have theory. Okay, well, yeah, I, I might believe things in the things that are theory that I can't prove that I might have a speculation on. But I mean, as far but as far as a belief system, I don't have one, man. I mean, uh, you know, I look for what I can prove. 
You know, I mean, I, I'm not interested in believing things. I'm interested in trying to know things. Uh huh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, but we live in a solipsistic culture where people are being taught. And again, this is this has been made possible because because our society's been so effeminized, right? And it's all about you know the way women are. They they don't want to talk about anything that's controversial and that might offend somebody, right? Even though they love to create drama just for the fuck of it, but. Um, you know, but that's, that's where we get this whole solipsistic, well, one one person's opinion is as good as the next person's opinion, even if it's not. And that's bullshit, man. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, where, where you can't claim to know anything. The only, people, the only people who are authorized to know anything are the government, right? Yep. I mean, <laughs> you know. Well, not your daddy, yeah. not my, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, you know, I hate that shit too, man, because you get this shit all the time, or it's like they're so scared of offending somebody. Look, 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 it's not my goal to offend people. I'm not trying to offend people, but if it does offend people, oh, well, maybe they needed to be offended, man. I mean, that's not, you know, you, you, you can't discuss how to deal with the problem we're in unless you're willing to be honest about the problem that we're, that we're dealing with. No, well, you have to start, first off, people need to understand, you have to be willing to be honest. You have to be willing to understand that if you believed in something, you find out it was wrong, that you had to be willing to accept the fact that it fell for a PSYOP, a propaganda, and Thousands of us, all of us, have at one time or another, including myself, including Warren. And you have to be willing to admit that to yourself and to everybody else and move forward with the real truth after you know. Yeah. I mean, obviously, some people's opinions, I mean, you know, hold more weight than others. I mean, given the situation, I mean, to, to a particular situation. Like, let's say, for example, okay. If there was an electrical problem in my house and, and my power went out, right? I don't know anything about electricity, right? Let's say, Bill, you've been an electrician for the past 30 years, and you're a professional electrician. I, that would mean that, that the chances are you probably know a lot more about how to fix this situation than I would, right? Of course. So your opinion would hold more weight than mine would. Well, <laughs> you know, that's sort of the way it goes because... You know, I did remodels for years, and I wired yeah. homes, homes, you know, built rooms, uh, framed them, drywalled them, I mean, wired them, drywalled them, finished them, the old nine yards. So I know a lot about that kind of stuff. But if you took somebody that's never done it, and they're going to give me their opinion on how to do it, and they've never done it, then their opinion means really nothing. But, you know, yeah, if they you know. were... Uh, if they were somebody like, a, let's say they fixed airplanes or, you know what I'm saying, or jets. I've never yeah. done that in my life. So now I'm going to tell them how to do it, right? Not. <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not saying that people should always necessarily, you know, trust the uniform to trust the experts all the time. I mean, it's a situational thing. Like, when it comes to, like, your health or, like, you know, yeah, you can make that argument. Well, well they're doctors, they're trained. Yeah, but they're also indoctrinated. I mean, so it's a slippery slope there. I mean, you know, like, 
just because somebody's educated in a sense, like, like there are people with degrees who are educated, but they're also indoctrinated. Like, yeah, doctors, maybe in a certain extent, they know more what they're doing, but a lot of times when it comes to medicine and stuff, a lot of them pretty much, I mean, either they they know damn well what they're doing or they don't know what they're doing, man. If they know what they're doing, they, then, they're, then they're a greedy motherfucker. If they don't know what they're doing, then they're just a, as they say, you know, a pawn in the game, you know, a useful idiot or whatnot. But, um, you know, I mean, as far as the medicine goes, I mean, but as far as surgery goes, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, the, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm not a surgeon. I don't know anybody as a surgeon. So yeah, I mean, you know, I'm gonna have to rely on, you know, they know more what they're doing as far as operating on on a body than I do. So, you know. Oh, well, there you go. But I mean, yeah. I go back to old school on that one, and I'll use a sitcom for example. This is an old time sitcom that played when I was a kid, but most people know what the sitcom is. It was called The Beverly Hillbillies. I remember that. Yeah. Well, Jeff well, he always claimed he was a brain surgeon, and he knew his math because it was not, 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 not. <laughs> yeah, you know. Grandma Ellie Mae, my grandma, man. Was, you know, Ellie Mae was the, was the young blonde chick. Grandma, man. Her granny was funny, though, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, granny was, man. She was a character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, I'm back. It's crazy when you look at that. People look back and they look at that as all those are a bunch of hillbillies and all that. But I'm going to tell you something, though, man. Back in them days, man, they might have been a bunch of hillbillies. And I'm not saying that they're perfect, they had their problems, too. But I can give them one thing, man. They knew the value of a family, man. They knew the value of a strong family. You know, and some cultures today relatively do, but, 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 but you know, what's happening is feminism spreads along with the westernization process. It's going to destroy these cultures that still have these family values. Like you see some brown cultures that still have family values intact, like in South America and in the Middle East. And I don't agree with everything that's going on in all those cultures. Don't get me wrong. One of the, you know, one good thing I can say about them is they have family values. That's not going to last long with with the, with the spread of feminism. I'm going to tell you that right now. Um, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. feminism know exactly. was a movement that was specifically designed to destroy the family unit in order in order to usher in a socialistic age. Oh, exactly. And you know, and unfortunately, they've done exactly that. But it wasn't just the feminist movement that destroyed the family unit, but that was a gigantic part of it. Okay? Yeah. You know, yeah. we have a few programs that went into destroying the family unit, and they were very successful. That's all i got to say. The well, gynocentrism is, is bigger than feminism. I will say that. But feminism in particular... Has the most has had the most heaviest impact as far as breaking down the family. I mean, you had gynocentrism before feminism. You had a, uh, you know, gynocentric traditionalism. But you see all these tr- uh, trad coming out now that are pretty much like right wing feminists. But the one difference, uh, as far as historically speaking, as far as the impact that the movements have had, is that the feminists uh, thus far have been the ones that, that really kickstarted the breakdown of the family. Yeah. You know. Um. So, 
but again, feminism grew out of gynocentric conservatism. I mean, you know, right wing, which again is like a right wing feminism. That I mean, but it didn't call itself feminism. It just called itself. It didn't call itself anything back then. But um, it's gynocentric uh, traditionalism was the root of uh, feminism, which is you know, so so feminism, left wing feminism today grew out of uh, a right wing or uh, a conservative ideology. You know. So, mm-hmm. so, so the gynocentrism is, is, is bigger than a left wing or a right wing thing. That's one of the biggest things that is all this head wrecking. You see all these anti feminists about like, uh, or, or, you know, it's, it's all the feminists, it's all the feminists. It's like, no, you're chasing a symptom, man. It's, it's, you gotta go deeper than that. They, they, they think that if they're anti democrat and if they're anti uh, feminist, that means they're they're, they're, they're they're fighting the war on men. No, that's not it, man. They're, they're chasing the symptoms. You gotta you gotta attack gynocracy. It's on all sides of the system. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, it don't matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or a Liberal. It, it don't matter what. Uh, it, it don't matter what party they say they're affiliated with. I mean, the, you know, this whole system is, is gynocentric in one way or another. It's just you, you, what you got is you got different um, conflicting gynocentric ideologies, right? So when you see uh-huh. like. Uh, Traditional women's rights activists, uh, you know, which is like, you know, like uh, the traditionalist women's activists clashing with, like, the feminists, say, for example. That's about, like, the same thing as when you see, like, you know, the the Black Panthers uh, colliding with uh, fucking, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter. Or if you see, like, the Ku Klux Klan clashing with the Aryan Nation. I mean, they, they 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 both harbor the same prejudice. They both harbor pretty much the same rudimentary ideas, but they're fighting over minutia details. You see what I'm saying? Uh huh. I mean, so I mean, it's, I mean, you know, I don't know, man. I mean. It's one of those things that you look for a way that this could work. I mean, I don't know, man. There's so many angles. I mean, yeah, breeding is a big part of this, you know. Things, well, yeah, things get passed yeah. through the... Go ahead. I said, no, what you're saying is correct. I have a little bit going on on the side right here. <laughs> While we're doing the show, I'm talking to who's going to be on Monday night. <laughs> oh yeah, she listening? Uh, she's not listening to the show, but she's typing at me right now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, and I'm right not to be, okay, and I'm not wanting to be rude. She probably thinks that the show's over because of the starting time of the show, but I did that out of respect for her because of her schedule. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So she's probably yeah. thinking, she, you know, and she probably doesn't realize I'm in the live show. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, if she wants to call in. I mean, I don't have an issue with it. I mean, you know. I mean, anybody can call in. I mean, nobody ever calls oh, in on my show much more. She don't even have, I don't even have people calling the TFL Topic Show very often. Most of the people are on the live stream. That's why I told you, go to the live stream when we live feed on YouTube, because 
And it's not like yeah, it was I, I go there. I mean, but they're all in the comment box. Now people are going to live streams and things like that, and you know, and you're not getting as many people calling into shows like Blog Talk. They'll listen and not call in. And if they have a chat box they can go to, they'll go there to chat the box. Okay, so, and as you discovered when we're doing the live feeds, when you're there, there's people that show up and they're all there in the chat typing away and blah, blah. So, you know, that's one of the reasons I've moved that direction to also do the live stream. The only reason I don't do the live stream on your night is because you can't be reading and reading the box at the same time and answering people. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know. There's only one. There's only one of you. That's just not possible. <laughs> I mean, I wonder how many listeners actually have on my stream, man. I mean, like I said, I don't expect to have that many because it's very deep. It's very deep, deep information, and and you know, I mean, most people ain't going to really be able to grasp that. I mean, but. But I mean, I know there's a few of them that are like Stan Santa Missy at Sanity, man. I mean, I, I, I know he can keep up with it, man. I mean, you know. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm curious. I'm kind of curious how many people I got like keeping up with my show. There's a few other people that 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 will uh, be like on my night. You see them in the comment section. They, to some degree or another, follow the call. I don't know to what degree, but you know. But I mean, you know, that's the thing, man. Is, is it is, is there really is such an occult angle to all of this, man? And and really, it's kind of easily proven. Anybody who really wants to sit down and break down and do the research, man, because you got to read the stuff that they write themselves, and you got to look at the fact. And most most politicians, if you look hard enough, they don't even hide it. They, they they've got affiliations with some branch of Freemasonry or some shit like that. You see them with the rings on their fingers. You see them. So I mean. You know, sometimes if you watch close enough, like they're on stage or in a public eye, you watch the handshakes and shit they give. You got to watch closely, man. You got to have an eye for that shit, man, you know. I mean, but it's, it's out there, man. I mean, yeah. And, I mean, everything that we've been speaking about from the time I've, I've been saying here about how religion was all a business plan, okay, and about how they, they have a long-term occult agenda to breed us into hermaphrodites to, as a super slave race. The, the book that I've been reading through has been talking about all of that stuff, and I'm only, like, just 100 pages into it. So it's been confirming all that stuff that I've been saying for all those years. Everybody, all these people out there that just kind of ignored it and blew it off, or they don't know what he's talking about. Most of those people, most of those folks, probably still ain't listening, man. To be honest, but if they, but if they were sitting out there and they're listening to that, you know, you want to know where I got this stuff from, man? Well, just 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 keep listening to my show, man, because I'm putting it all out there for you, man. You know, everything everything that Bill and I have been talking about is all out. I mean, you know, I'm doing the research for you. All you got to do is listen. Sit on the fence and listen. And let the, let the evidence pile up. That's it. You it know. piles up in your face. Common sense of people who just but see common sense isn't even common anymore. 
Now it's like, oh, what's common sense? Oh, dig through that haystack, and somewhere in the middle is a needle that has common sense on it. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't even talk about common sense anymore. It's just basic sense. That's all it is, man. Basic sense, and to be honest with you, it's, it's so rare. It's a fucking superpower. I, I I I could don some colorful fucking underwear and some spandex tights and put a mask over my face and be, you know, the uh, the the genius Avenger. I have the superpower of basic sense. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh huh. It's like a superpower, man. <laughs> Maybe that give me a little cape and shit too, you know. <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> huh. I think I'll be. I think I'll be a little cape, and I'm just instead of being Superman, I'll be like. Did you ever see the sitcom that played years ago called The Great American Hero? Yeah, I remember that. It was goofy because the guy had trouble flying and crashed a lot of times. Yeah, and he was a complete oh. idiot. He kept trying to be a superhero. He had like an orange and black uniform. I remember that. I was a little kid when I came home. Yep, and they had he was working with this FBI agent guy, and he was flying, ah, and then he tried to crash and crash into shit. And when he tried to land, <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> he was the super Dave of superheroes. Yeah, and I think I think while you're Superman, I'll go ahead and be him. <laughs> You remember Super Dave, don't you? I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, stuntman, he kept fucking up all the time. He was like a comedy stuntman. Uh-huh. That's what a great American is. He's like the Super Dave of superheroes. <laughs> yeah. Man, man, we, we, we met some, some old folks, man, because I remember all this old shit, man. <laughs> You know, I'd be talking about stuff I watched when I was a kid, man, nowadays, man. These young kids, I'm like, what the hell is that? I'm like, man, I just, do you ever watch a show called The State when you're younger? It's like a skit uh, no, comedy. Uh-uh. It came on in the early to mid-90s, man, on MTV. Back, back before MTV totally fucking sucked. But, uh... You know, yeah, that was a funny show, man. I mentioned that today, and a lot of these young kids, I'm like, what is that? I don't know that. It's like, like man, I used to, used to be the shit, man. That might, have been, that might have been after your time, though, man. I don't know if you, I don't know. Well, after my time would be, you know, well, you know, I stopped watching. It depends on when it come on, because I did stop watching TV about 12 years ago. And, and it would be also, you got to remember, you're from a different generation. Yeah. So some I was hooked into you was way before your time, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So we're from two different generations. Yeah. And lucky you, you got a better generation. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. it was better than we grew up in, that's for sure, but it was already getting corrupt, but at least I grew yeah. up in a better time. When I was a kid, I mean, come on, I was born in 60, so I grew up in the 70s, and, you know, 70s and 80s, and by the time I was in the 80s, I was already an adult, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I so, I mean, yeah, I mean, 
You, I mean, you even had, uh, you know, hypergamy, and you even had, like, fucking uh, TFL as early as the 60s. I mean, you didn't have as much of it then as you have today, but, but it had already started. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't nearly as bad as it's gotten today. No, so 30 years ago, it wasn't as bad as it's gotten today. You know what, what it got really bad is sometime during the early to mid-90s, man, like, like around 91 or so. It, 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 almost overnight, man, it just got, like... Exponentially worse when feminism, when that big wave of feminism hit in the early '90s, man, it, it almost went like like as if overnight, you know. Where I think, well, I know what my experience was is when I actually had, when I was when I was in middle school, man, right? But yeah, you know, I went from from having um, from having access to being with several girls my age who uh, you know who were interested in me and whatnot. To almost overnight being completely fucking cut off like a wall, you know. And I've heard other guys say the same thing too. They've noticed that, like sometime during the early '90s when feminism picked up, it was almost as if all at one time TFL just got like a lot worse. Just boom, the people people that previously had access to to be able to, to get women were just miraculously just cut off, you know. <laughs> I mean, exactly. You know, it's just no, no explanation, it, nothing. They're just cut off. Well, let's look at this one. If we go back five, six years ago when the TFL radio show was hot and lots of people calling in and blah blah blah, mm-hmm. now look at it. Okay, back then people wasn't afraid to call in. They would voice at least voice chat with you, right? Mm. And now you don't got hardly any people that are willing to do that. They don't want to type to you. They don't want to voice chat. They want to type. Yeah. See, that's what the technology's done. People get together and they're so disconnected. They got on their cell phones. They get on their iPads and they type. <coughs> That, that even a faker commit. I mean, yeah, at least if you call them up on the phone and talk to them, at least you're actually hearing each other's voices. That's a step up from from from, from texting and shit like that. I mean, you know, I mean, at least that's some kind of real communication. At least you're actually hearing the person's real voice. I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe it's not as good as being able to stand in front of somebody and talk to them person to person, but at least you're actually hearing their voice. I mean. You know, I mean, uh-huh. I don't know why more people don't call in here. I mean, it'd be nice if some of them would call in, man. You know, you think how many how many people used to call in back in the day, back when this show was open, man? I mean, oh, back you know, then we had a lot. Calling in, but nowadays they're not. They're just not calling in. You know, they'll come in, they'll come up on YouTube, they'll come into the live feed, they'll listen to the show. Sometimes they'll jump into the live feed and they'll start typing. But, you know, you can put the number out to them blue in the face and they just don't want to call in. Yeah, I know. That's what it is. You know. Well, I mean, you know, as far as the whole TFL subject goes, I mean, I think it's been been beat to half to death. I mean, you know, 
And as far as the, 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 the I mean, let's be honest, on Monday night, the majority of your, of your people calling in, uh, probably at least a little over half of them or more, are, are probably there primarily for the dating scene topics. And, um, yeah. you know, we've already done beat that horse to death. And then if we get well, into, uh, you know. Find out a new angle now. I'm bringing a woman on board. I told you I wanted to approach a different angle, and I want to try yeah. to wake up the gender as much as possible, and I want to try to take some of the guys' hatred towards females because of being pushed out their whole life, and I want them to be able to see the other side of the division. Yeah. Right. Yeah. See, I don't hate when, women. I mean, I want. I mean, you know, I mean, I have a different point of view, but I, mean, I don't hate women. I just. I'm not uh-huh. talking about you. I'm not oh, I know. Oh, you. I know. But some some of the other guys do, and I, I mean, you know, some of the other guys in there do. Like you know, you see some of them in there. I mean, I ain't going to put names out there, but I mean, I can understand why they're frustrated and why they're angry. But 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 but, but it's not productive. It's not that. It's not the way to go about it. I mean, yeah. Yep. You there? Yeah. I'm right here. I'm just yeah. having, having this thing going on over here I told you about. <laughs> That's really nothing with me. <laughs> yeah. But don't worry, that won't happen again because I'm going to let her know the actual schedules so that she knows on this particular night I'm in a show with you yeah. until a certain time so that she don't type me during that time. <laughs> yeah. This just started up right about the time you quit reading, too. <laughs> yeah, right. We got like six minutes left. So. Yeah, we ain't even got yeah, I mean, we're down. We're down to three minutes. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, so but I mean. Just plan, on, just plan on Monday night. There is going to be a woman aboard. I know we're live right now, but there will be a woman on the TFL Topic Show from here on out. And my goal for that is to wake up the other gender as much as possible and to help angry men that have lived TFL because they've been pushed out their whole life and to let other people understand how the programming in society affected the opposite gender and how the programming was. What I gave them example was take a poll and put men on one side and women on the other side and when men was directed to this type of programming and women was directed to the other type. And they already studied the human mind and behavior of men and women both. And they knew what the outcome and results would be. Okay. They already knew what the results was going to be. That's why they gave you PUA. That's why they gave them up because they problem reaction solution. They had to give a phony solution because they knew there was going to be a lot of men pushed out. Okay, so, you know, but it's important that we see the other side. It's important that you see how what social conditioning programming did for the female gender as well so that you can understand why they made choices they made, like why men make choices they make. Okay, and a lot of this you don't even know is going on. You You don't see it. You grow up in it. It becomes norm. Everybody's doing it. Nobody wants to be ostracized, you know, pushed out. Everybody has gravitates to want to fit in. 
Yeah. Okay. I'm, I might have to call in during the second hour, man, because it's going to be it's going to have to be pulled back an hour. I'm going to have to uh, call in. I'm not calling it regular time, but it means I'll only be on for about an hour. Yeah, I understand. You can get in there at eight o'clock, do so, or if you can't, then I'll see you at nine. But with that being yeah. said, guys, we're down to the last few seconds of the show, so I'm going to go ahead and end it. And I'll be back up here Saturday night instead of Sunday for this week only. Saturday night I'll be up with Jerry live. And then I'll be back on Monday with uh, this female I'm telling you about and Warren. So until then, people, you have a good one. All right. Good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.